the idea of being identified and have to answer for, for our annex. And so we were happy to go, and Ken's, Ken Gullickson invited us to be a, a vineyard. And then he invited John Wimber to take that group of churches that he'd started and, and really to take it from that point forward. So Ken Gullickson, the founder of the Vineyard Christian Fellowship, John Wimber, the founder of the Vineyard Movement. Okay, so two different people. Um, and, and John was a, a, an unpretentious, down-to-earth kind of guy. He, he didn't like to get religious. He didn't like to get people all ramped up and, 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 and all intense. And, and in fact, if he sensed an intensity in the room and people trying to work something up or people trying to, he would just lighten the mood. He'd tell jokes during the middle of ministry time. Uh, he'd make fun of people. He'd do all kinds of stuff to just get people out of their, you know, religious garments and, and, and getting them to walking and breathing and living in the freedom that they have in Christ. So, but, but he was, you know, the more transparent he was, the more honest he was, the more self-disclosing he was, the more human he was, the more people liked him. You know, and so, uh, you know, and he didn't want to be anybody's hero. He just was a guy. So he was at, uh, a, a big giant Christian university in the States one time. And, uh, and it was, uh, a large university and it was a large auditorium and he was going to speak to the student body. And so, just before that, he got this big, giant introduction. And in certain circles, they, they'll do that. They'll do like a 20-minute introduction to a person and build the person up. And, and then, you know, now let's give, you know, this is what the guy does. Now let's give Dr. John Wimber a such-and-such such university welcome. And, you know, everybody stands and they all clap and they all cheer. And, you know, John's just, uh, you know, he was, a, he was like 5'11 and 280, so he's a little tad overweight. Um, 280 pounds. I don't know what you, you'd use here. Do you use stones? Or, yeah, so that's a lot of stones. Um, so he kind of walks out, you know. And so he did, kind of sauntered like that. And he goes, you know, you know before I get started, um, I, need to, I need to correct something. He said, you know, I don't have a doctorate. He said, I don't have an earned doctorate. I don't have any sort of honorary doctorate. I just don't have a doctorate. So he goes, you know, the truth is, he goes, I don't have a master's degree. Um, and he said, you know, and, and I, I have a Bachelor of Arts, but they pretty much just gave that to me because of my experience in the music industry. John was um, uh, responsible for putting together the, the, the Righteous Brothers, which is an early 60s group and had some really big hits. And um, he produced their first album and all that. And so he, he just goes, you know what? He goes, I'm just John. I'm just a fat man trying to get to heaven. And of course, he became even more of a hero, you know, because those students just loved him because there was no stuff. <laughs> and, um, and, and of course, it endeared him to people. And you know, that's, that's who he was. He was, a, he was a guy that introduced the church, a model of ministry to the church that the, a broader sense, of, a broader spectrum of the church could put their arms around um he you know the 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 pentecostal the belief in healing and the power of the holy spirit the baptism of the holy spirit speaking in tongues all that stuff you know was pretty much tucked away in pentecostal and charismatic churches and and there was none of it in in evangelical churches but not because people didn't believe it it's because they didn't know the the model that they saw for it just wasn't something that they could swallow, that they could deal with. And so John came along, and he's just a guy, you know, wearing Hawaiian shirts and shorts and, uh, you know, and just getting up there and, and opening the Bible and teaching the Bible and then, and then inviting the Holy Spirit to come. And then, then he would come and touch people. And it was a remarkable thing and created, created really quite a stir around the world. And, um, so I'm coming out of that ethos. I'm, uh, I'm not a, I'm not a, terribly religious person and I find myself very uncomfortable in religious settings um, and in and, and pretentious settings. Uh, I like things honest and down to earth and transparent and real uh, and, and so when I share with you, I'm just sharing with you from, from a place of just being a guy who met Jesus a long time ago and has been trying to follow him ever since. But before we go any further, um, Caitlin, how are you doing tonight? Huh? How you doing? What? Is this, is it, I, I'm sensing. 
I'm feeling it's just like it's a special day. It, it, what? 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 It, that it may be. I mean, it, does 16 mean anything to you? The number 16? It does? Yes? Oh my gosh, this is amazing. How would I know this? Well, it is Caitlin's 16th birthday. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, dear Caitlin. Happy birthday to you. And I'm not going to claim, I'm not going to claim this was the Lord, but when I first got to, you know, the Delaney's house, I, I'm, I'm just, I'm really going to be careful with this. I, I kind of felt, not sure, but I, you know, but I, I gave her a word immediately, immediately. And I just said, stay away from boys. You know, so, uh, you know, you guys keep an eye on her. I'm going to leave tomorrow and uh, keep it in, in, just only until she's 30. Um, so, yep, God bless you, Caitlin. <laughs> All right. Um, we're going to just look at Jesus a little bit tonight, and then we're going to minister to people that aren't well, uh, that have need for healing. Uh, because we, we're, as followers of Jesus, we happen to believe some things, and, and they're supposed to not just be principles and not supposed to be concepts but they're supposed to be reality we believe that that god created the heavens and the earth and and we believe that he set they created man and that man fell into sin and when man fell into sin there was a separation a gap that that came between god and man and that and then we watch the history of the old testament unfold and it's a history of redemption god establishing the children of israel and then jesus coming and and coming in and living in the flesh on the earth dying on a cross raising from the dead sending the holy spirit to, to empower His church. And that is the ripple effects of that are why we're sitting here tonight. The reality of that thing is why we're sitting here tonight. And so, if we believe that, if I believe that God created the heavens and the earth, I believe that ultimately He sent His Son to, to bring reconciliation between me and man. If I believe that, if I believe that He ascended to the heavens and that He sent His Holy Spirit to dwell within us, His church, and in, within that, the indwelling of His Holy Spirit, there's power for healing and deliverance and freedom and, you know, all kinds of good stuff. Then it's really silly or ridiculous or just plain stupid, um, to gather in His name and not expect anything. I mean, how absurd is that? So, so we don't, we don't want to catch ourselves marching in, same place, same time, same thing, you know, and marching out, same thing. You know, we want to come in, you know, and, and if we're carrying some sort of burden, some sort of uh, we're, we're encumbrance, some, some sort of sickness, some sort of sin, some sort of whatever it is, we don't want to walk out with it. We want to leave it right here, you know, and, and, and just move on in Him. And so when I'm done yapping, uh, which I've been doing a lot of the last few days, um, we're going we're gonna to just invite Him to come and move and touch people's lives. And, because He will. He'll do that. Um, and, and, and he loves to do that. And so, and he, he'll do it as soon as I get out of the way. So, let's, we're gonna just look at some, some different encounters with Jesus. The first one is just the fact that Jesus came. In John chapter one, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then later on, it says in verse 14, it says, And the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And then in verse 18, it says, No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who Himself, who is Himself God, is in close relationship with the Father, and He's made Him known. So when God decided to communicate to us, He became a man. He, he dwelt flesh and walked among us and demonstrated us for us how it is to live in fellowship with God. He was tempted um, and, and, and tested, and, and it wouldn't be legitimate if he couldn't have failed. He, he, he was tempted and he was tested, and then he, but he, he was found 
he, he found solace in the Word of God and in the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. Jesus was filled with the Holy Spirit before He went into ministry. If Jesus was filled with the Holy Spirit, how much more do we need to be filled with the Holy Spirit? You know? And so, um, so anyway, Jesus modeled for us. So the Word became flesh and walked among us. And, and then it says in, chapter, in verse 18, it says, and in essence, Jesus made, helped us to understand, helped us to see. He explained the Father. Now, the Pharisees and the religious leaders did not understand the Father. They didn't, they, they totally thought the Father was about rules and regulations. And they made up so many rules and regulations. You know, there was a law against, you know, working on the Sabbath. And then they ended up instituting another three or four hundred laws added on to that. You know, it was all about the rules. It was all about trying to, you know, toe the line and keep things in order. And they just totally missed the heart of the Father. They totally missed it. And, and they, they, they created burdens for people. They were supposed to be the leaders. They were supposed to lead people to God. And yet they just bound up burdens. They put them on people's backs. And they made them walk under that. And yet they were willing to walk under it themselves. So Jesus came along and He said, he, he, so He came to demonstrate to us the heart of the Father, the, the character of the Father, the, the, the attitude and attributes of the Father. He demonstrated it to us so we could see what the Father's really like. He became obscured in the mix of all the rules and regulations that the Pharisees were loading up on the lives of the people. Okay? And, and we see at one point where he came and he, and he spoke, and we've got it in, the math, in Matthew 5, 6, 7, and chapter 7. And he, what we call the Sermon on the Mount. And he gets done talking, and there's a transition between 7 and 8, and it says, and the people were in awe of him because he spoke like somebody who actually had a real authority. In other words, he talked like somebody who knew what he was talking about. And the religious leaders and the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they didn't. It was clear to the people that what they said and who they were were two different things. Two different things. I'm going to come back to that. So Jesus, he, he not only spoke the word and, and, and said things that nobody had ever said. I mean, he's like, you know, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who despitefully use you. Be merciful and God will be merciful to you. Don't judge and you won't be judged. It was like completely upside down to everything they'd been taught and everything that they'd heard up to that point. And then, then he said this. He said, because God is kind to the undeserving and the ungrateful. Sometimes we think we have to like earn this stuff. Like we've got to do all the right things. No, He is kind to the undeserving and the ungrateful, which is us. Amen. And so, and then what He says you just need to do for others what I've done for you. That's it. That's all. And we sometimes we make it so difficult. All we have to do is do for others what He's done. Has He loved me unconditionally? Hello? Okay, I thought the microphone went off or something. You know? uh, yeah, he's lo He loves me unconditionally. Has He forgiven me of all my sins, past, present, and future? Is He judging me? Has He been merciful to me? That's all I have to do with others. <coughs> I told you my story last night. And uh, part of that story is I had friends who turned on me bad. I mean, turned on me big time. Not only did they turn on me, they, they began to um, slander me and make up lies about me and spread those things around. And, and I can tell you this from experience, that doesn't come back. Unspreading gossip, is like taking back gossip is like trying to unspread butter. Um, it just it's out there. It just doesn't happen. So you just live with it. Um, so you know, after years of that, and it was hard. I guarantee you, knowing people that I knew that I that I knew well, um, uh, slandering me and, and being so malicious and. I just, I, it was like beyond my comprehension. And, and, and eventually I kind of came to grips with some of it and I was kind of moving on with my life. And then I get a letter from one of them. And it was actually a Facebook message. 
And, and it just said, it just said, hi, Carl. And then it just went on and said all these really nice things. The gals and I, we were getting together and we were praying and, and your name came up and we started talking about you and we just were like, you know, you know, praying for you and praying that God would continue to use you. And, and I just want you to know that, that he's not done with you and that, you know, he's got a plan for you and, and da da da, love so and so. I'm sitting on my bed with my laptop in my lap, and I'm looking at that, and I'm looking closer. Whoops, this microphone just gives me fits. Um, I'm looking closer, and uh, no, no, there's no I'm sorry. Uh, there's no, oh, there's no, oh, forgive me. There was nothing. And I'm looking at, I'm not, and I, I literally, I looked to my ceiling, I, I said, what do I do with this? And then I look back on the screen, and it was as if Luke chapter 6 was superimposed on it. Just what I just told you. Bless those who curse for you. Pray for those who despitefully use you. You know, don't judge and you won't be judged. Be merciful and God will be merciful. For He's kind to the, you know, the ungrateful and undeserving. And I looked at that, and I just said, I got it. I got it. I got it. You took care of it. You paid for it. They don't owe me anything. They don't owe me apology. They don't owe me one thing. Because you paid for it all. And, and I'm telling you, it, it left like that. I, I have no bitterness. I have no hostility. I have no animosity uh, towards anybody. Regardless of what they did. Regardless of what they said. No, regardless of how they acted. It doesn't matter because of that. It doesn't matter because of that. And that's not a mind game. That's, that's something that where, where your heart has changed. I don't have the ability to love people that don't like me. I don't have the ability to, to be kind to people who treat me bad. I like people who like me. I love it when people like my stuff on Facebook. You know? Oh, there's 37 likes on that. You know? If, if you took a picture of this tonight, I'm probably going to get some not likes, but, uh, but that's just the haters. Um, We'll just love them anyway. Um, but, uh, so, you know, I mean, if, that's, you know, I, you know, who doesn't like people who like them? And, and who does like people who don't like them? Jesus. Jesus. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. They spit on him. They beat him. They ridiculed him. They mocked him. They tortured him. They nailed him to a cross. And, and, and Jesus looks down upon them in the midst of his agony, the midst of his pain, the midst of his sorrow. And he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Amazing. So Jesus came so he would experience what we experience. When we look in Mark chapter 14, and we see Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, and it says he was, he despaired to the point of death. Have you ever had such sorrow, such deep sorrow, such deep pain, emotional pain, that you just, that you just could not hardly bear it? And it says two times in Mark 14 that he threw himself to the ground. Can any of you throw yourself to the ground? You know, I mean, you young people over there can. You could do it and survive. I do it, you're calling emergency services. Um, you know, but it said Jesus was so under it, they threw himself to the ground. And it was the agony that he was experiencing. He knew, he knew what was coming. He knew that he was going to experience the consequence for my sin, for your sin. For our fallenness, He was going to take it all upon Himself. He was going to feel the wrath of heaven and take it on my behalf. And man, He said, Father, you know, if this, if we can figure out another plan, let's do that. Because this is not good. But you know what? The Hebrews tells us, but despising the shame, He endured the cross. Why? For the joy that was set before Him. What was that joy? Getting the family back together. When, when God created Adam and Eve, He was starting a family. He was starting a family. And they were meant to fellowship with the Father, Son, 
and Holy Spirit. They were, they were going to be embraced into that divine community. And then those who were born after that, would, the, the community would just grow and grow. And then Adam sinned and broke that. If you ever feel bad, by the way, about having made a mistake or blown it, just think about Adam. He blew the whole thing apart. He, he, he messed up the whole universe. Okay? So, and God forgave him, you know, and God was actually kind to him. Um, and so there was consequence for it. Uh, but God didn't come starting with a consequence. You know, and that's how Jesus came. It says here in, 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 in John chapter 1, He came with grace and truth. Grace and truth. That's how Jesus comes to us. That's how God came to Adam in the garden. Adam, where are you? He's walked. Do you think God didn't know where His creation was? Well, I lost my creation. Where did it go? You know, and Adam, Eve, where are you? You know, I mean, duh, He knew. You know who didn't know where they were? Adam and Eve. When God asks you a question, He's not looking. He doesn't. He knows the answer. You don't. I don't. He's saying, where are you? So that we come to grips with where we are. So we say, I'm naked and ashamed. And he says, well, let me, let me, get, let me clothe you. Let me get you settled here. And I still, there was a consequence. But he didn't start with the consequence. He started with the grace. And that's how God treats us. He always comes with grace and then truth. Because if he just gave us the truth, we couldn't handle it. He bathes us in grace first. Okay? So, so Jesus came to demonstrate. So I'm just going to refer to three stories. I'm not going to go to them at this point. I'll tell you where they are. You can check me out and see if I'm a liar later. Um, in Luke chapter 19, um, we see Jesus is, is ministering. He's traveling along a road. And there was a little guy, a little tax gatherer guy. He, was, he would have been, he would have had the reputation. He would have had the honor. He would have had the consideration of a child molester. In their culture, he was a, a, a traitor. He was a, a thief. He had betrayed his people, and he would have been in a category with the worst of the worst. Okay, and so he climbs up this tree because you know he'd heard about Jesus. You won't see him. And Jesus is walking along, and Jesus stops and says, "Zacchaeus, come down from that tree." First of all, I mean that's that's who God is. He knows our name. He knows our stuff. He knows where we're at. And so he just says, Zacchaeus, come down. I'm going to come to your house and sup with you. I'm going to have dinner with you. Outrageous, outlandish, absurd, ridiculous thing he was doing in that culture, in that place, at that time. And he knew he was being watched by the, the Pharisees and the rulers and the Sadducees and, uh, and the religious leaders. And, and, and he was just putting it right in their face. You know, there was an old Hebrew proverb that says, I've seen you eat, I know who you are. And what it meant was that, you know, in that day, you, you didn't eat alone. You always ate in community. You always ate with other people. And so, I've seen who you eat with. I know who you are. Therefore, your, their reputation becomes your reputation. And yet, Jesus sits down with the lowest of the low. People that nobody would have anything to do with. The only reason people were sitting around that table is because Zacchaeus was paying them off. They were his posse. You know, and so they, they were with him for that purpose. And in the middle of the meal, we have no record of Jesus saying anything to Zacchaeus about his sinfulness, about his treachery. We have no record of that whatsoever. And in the middle of the meal, Zacchaeus jumps up and says, Teacher, I will give half of what I have to the poor, and I will pay everyone back that I've stolen from, you know, multiple times over. And Jesus said, today, salvation has come to this house. What brought conviction to Zacchaeus? It wasn't the words of Jesus, it was the presence of Jesus. And it just did him in. We have another incident in John chapter 4, where Jesus is, is with his disciples, and he does three things that would have made him ceremoniously unclean. First of all, he spoke to a woman. In that time, that was just, 
You, you, as a rabbi, as a, a religious leader, you didn't do that. He spoke to a woman. Second of all, he spoke to a Samaritan woman who was less than an animal as far as the Jews were concerned. She was an invisible person. Jewish religious leaders, pastors, okay, let's just put it in modern day vernacular, pastors would have walked right by her and as if she didn't exist. She would be just like that podium. They walked right by her just like she didn't even exist. She was less than a human being. She was less than even, you know, something to be recognized. And Jesus, Jesus not only recognized, he talks to her. And then he asked her to get him a drink. That was the third strike. That would have been another thing that he did that would have made him ceremoniously unclean. And so, so it was just astounding what he was doing. And then he gets in a conversation with her. He doesn't just, um, he doesn't just say something. He interacts with her and, and says, woman, go get your husband. Knowing exactly what he's doing. Go get your husband. And she goes, well, I don't have a husband. <laughs> and she goes, bingo. You know, you know, you've, you've had five husbands and the man you're with, living with now is not your husband. And, and, uh, and he tells her about the living water and she gets all really excited about that, you know. Oh, I want that, you know. What are they? But he wasn't, he was speaking metaphorically. He was speaking about the Spirit of God. And so what happened to her is, is, of course, she has this encounter. The disciples come back and they go, oh, ho, ho, we leave you for one minute. You know, his handlers, you know, the ones who, you know, kept the children away and, and all that good stuff. You know, they, they get back and, and they're like, oh, he, here he, look at, he's doing it again. And, uh, but the woman, she's like ecstatic. Now we know the story, right? You've read the story. You know the story I'm referring to. She went from that place and she went and got all the people and she told them, I've met a man who told me everything I'd ever done. Is that what Jesus did? Nope. But that's what her experience was. You know, when, when God calls you out, I told you the story last night about the macaroni and cheese. You know, and the woman who identified with that word of knowledge. When God, out of 2,000 people, taps you on the shoulder and says, I know you, 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 you know that you're known. He didn't have to tell you anything else. Just the fact that, that He knows you. And you know, the Lord has done that to me so many times. He has specifically, totally, completely known my need. And um, <laughs> it's really okay. Jesus had to deal with this. He, Jesus had to deal with kids and running around and dogs barking and all kinds of things going on. And He just kept preaching. So, and, and the people kept paying attention. So that's what we do. And this is, that's what we do here. Okay? So... Um, so so this, you know, God just made Himself known to me specifically over and over and over and over again. And one time, it was kind of, kind of ironic, kind of funny, kind of sad. Um, I, um, I had, I had opened the mail one day, and we have a thing called the Internal Revenue Service. That's the one who collects taxes, is the Zacchaeuses of America. Um, and so, I opened an envelope one day from them, and it said, I owe them. $118,000. And I thought, my life's over. I'm going to be living on the streets in a cardboard box. Uh, and, you know, I mean, $118,000. But my friends, you'd have to listen to the tape from last night, my friends with the 1,200 bottles of wine had a tax attorney or two or three, you know, and so, so they've set me up with him and he, he helped take care of things and, and, you know, in the end I owed like $12,000, you know, um, and, and, um, which was still plenty of money. But the first bill that came to me was $3,000. Well, that weekend I had painted, um, these offices and I'd made $3,000. So I got my check for $3,000 for two days work. I probably worked like 12 hours, you know, painting. Um, I was doing really well painting. And so I got home and I sat down and that's when I got that. Then I, then I, all of a sudden I get this bill from the guy who helped me with the taxes. $3,000. And I was sitting at my desk and I went, The Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Put it in the envelope, put the stamp on it, send it away. You know, it's just like, but it, it was just a sign again for me that he knew, and he knew my he knew my specific, absolute need at that moment, and and it just 
man, you just, when that happens, you go, oh my, he knows everything then. You know, I was in a meeting one time and a prophetic word was given um, to a couple that I knew. I'm going to take the time to tell the story because it's phenomenal. I'm in a church meeting with my church and um, it's about, there's a lot of people there. And uh, I had this guy come in that, to minister. His name is Paul Kane. And, and, and he came in to minister at the church and he spoke that night and he ministered a little bit and it really sucked. Um, it just, it was so, it was so disappointing. You know, we had about 900 people there. We had a church about 200 and we had 900 people there, you know. And so I'm like, oh gosh, this is horrible. And, uh, but he was coming back the next night. So that night I'm home. I had friends come up. They drove 300, you know, how many? 300 miles to come, uh, and see this thing. So they're at my house and we're hanging out afterwards. And, and, uh, and I get this phone call from this gal named Regina. And she said, her husband's name is Kevin. She said, Kevin's on his way over to your house. I said, why? And she said, well, he's, he, you know, he has some secrets. You know, you know, and she told me that Paul Kane tonight was talking about having secrets. And so I asked Kevin if he had any secrets. And when I asked him that, he got up out of bed. And he started to put his clothes on. And she said, what are you doing? She, and he said, when I tell you what I'm going to tell you, you're going to ask me to leave. And he was right on uh, because he told her about all these multiple, multiple affairs that he was having. And so so he comes up, shows up at my house about 11 o'clock, 1130 at night. He has to go to work at four in the morning. So I said, listen, Kevin, just go over to Ralph's house. We lived across the street. Spend the night there. When you're off your shift tomorrow, uh, call me, come to the office and we'll talk. So that happens. And then about 11 o'clock the next morning, I get a call from Paul Kane. And Paul goes, he goes, you know, how you doing, Carl? And I'm going, fine. He goes, well, what did you think about last night? I lied to a prophet. I said, oh, it was great. You know, <laughs> that was great, you know. Oh, wonderful, you know. And then I kind of slid right off and I said, you know, yeah, it sure stirred up some stuff. And he goes, uh, he goes, domestic? I said, yeah. He goes, is her name Regina? Yes, you know, I'm sore afraid right now. Um, and so, um, so he goes, well, can you make sure that they're there tonight? And I said, I can't make sure Kevin's going to be alive tonight. You know, um, and so, uh, but I'll try. So I met with Kevin that afternoon. It was the worst story you could ever have. Absolutely, totally horrible. A few minutes after I met with him, she calls me. She says, well, what do you think? I said, I think we'll support you in any way, shape, and form you want. <laughs> uh, you know, we'll, we'll walk through this thing with you. Now, we told him the same thing. We told him, regardless of whether she divorced him or, or whatever, that uh, we would walk through it. It would go as far with, as he wanted to go, you know, with, with this thing. And so, but I told her that, you know, obviously, if she didn't want to remain married to him, it would be, you know, I mean, it wouldn't be hard to understand that. And, um, and then she tells me, she quoted me back to me. Uh, I had always told the church, you know, love covers a multitude of sins. Go find a multitude of sins and cover it with love. So she quoted that to me. And she says, I, I feel like I have enough love to cover his sins. And I'm like, okay. I said, can you be there tonight? She said, yes. And then, you know, Kevin was there. So we go into the meeting. Paul does a great job that night. He's funnier than heck. Calls some people out. He knows all this. I know the people. I know what he's saying to them is absolutely true. It was kind of fun. And and then he all of a sudden he gets he gets real solemn. He says, you know, I need to do some, I need to do some of the Lord's work right now. Can I do some of the Lord's work right now in a regular? Now nobody in my church, everybody in my church knew Kevin and Regina, because about a year prior to that, their two-year-old daughter Haley Ann um, had died of a brain tumor. It was she went into the hospital Saturday night. Tuesday, we're, I'm at Shock Hospital, Children's Hospital of Los Angeles, and I'm standing there with them talking to them about donating the organs of their little girl. You know, you talk about baptism by fire as a pastor. It, it was, it was tore me to shreds. So, everybody knew them. But they're sitting across sides of the room. And Paul goes, uh, Kevin, are you here? Stand up. So this guy right over here stands up, Kevin. And Paul begins to speak to him. Now, oh, I didn't tell you. In the earlier story, when he said, is, is her name Regina? I said, yes. And he said, is his name Kevin? 
I thought, well, that's interesting that he would ask for his name, but not hers. So then he starts to speak to this person right here. And I know right away it's the wrong person. And, and, and then Paul's like mid-sentence, he goes, you're, you're not the right Kevin. Okay, that's impressive. Um, and so, so the right Kevin stands up back here, and Paul says, Kevin, he says, you have a, and I kind of resent this, you have a California spirit. Um, uh, you have a spirit of lust. And he said, and, uh, and the enemy's trying to take you out, and he's trying to destroy you, and he's trying to kill you like he killed your daughter. We were sitting on the front row, my wife and my associate's wife, and we went from sitting on the front row to laying on the ground, crawling for the lowest point on the earth because we were scared to death. It was like, oh my gosh, God is here and He knows everything. This is not good news. <laughs> you know, just coming from where we were coming from. And so... So anyway, he, he, so he calls out Regina. He does this whole thing with Kevin, you know. Then he calls out Regina. Regina stands up and he said, Lord, Regina, when the Lord showed me you, he showed me a Regina vacuum cleaner. Now in the U.S. there was a vacuum cleaner called a Regina upright. And he said, the Lord told me you're an upright woman. And so, and then he went on to tell her some other things and then told her that God would give her a heart to forgive if she could and blah, blah, blah. Had them come forward. We all prayed for them. It was this big sob fest, you know. And, and, uh, and then from that point on, we, we started to, you know, work with them. Now remember, I mean, God met them suddenly, but they had a little work to do still. You figure? Uh, there were some things going on in his life, you know, that needed to get straightened out. There was obviously she had a mountain of of mistrust and and hurt and stuff to work through and diff- so we knew that we do, we didn't expect it to just be like that. So I actually assigned a couple to them, you know, to just look after them and be there with them. Well, about three months into it, I get a phone call and it's Regina, and she says, "I can't do it." And I said, "Okay." You know, I mean, the guy was with like 20 different women, you know. Um, what am I going to say to her? Tough it out. You know, so I said, no, I said, I get it. I understand. Um, and all of a sudden, the Lord starts to speak to me. And I'm like, oh, no, this isn't going to be good. Um, and I said, that's okay. I said, that's that's good, Regina. I said, but I said, can I ask you a question? She goes, Sure. I said, when the Lord called you out, what did He say about you? She said, well, He said, I'm an upright woman. And then the next thing came to me. This is called a word of wisdom. And it breaks right through everything. I said, isn't that amazing? That when the Lord calls you out, He calls you an upright woman. A woman who had two abortions and her first child out of wedlock. Silence, and all of a sudden Regina goes, I get it. I get it. I said, Regina, do what you need to do, but the resource for your forgiveness of him is his forgiveness of you. It's been 22 years. They're still together, living in Idaho. They have seven children, all kinds of grandchildren. And uh, she's full of wisdom. And they, you know, help other couples out of the midst of that mess. Isn't that awesome? Isn't that a good story? Wasn't that worth telling? Um, but that's what Jesus does. That's what Jesus does. And so he does it with the woman at the well. And then the last person that I'll, that I'll end with is, is, and this is my favorite, and I kind of dramatize it a little bit. I kind of take it, take some license and liberty with it. Um, I learned that from my mentor, uh, uh, John. And, um, <clears throat> but it's a woman caught in adultery. And so I, I teach on this a lot, um, because I just think it's so amazing. I'm not, I'm not really sure what happens in this deal, but, but this is, this is, um, this is totally fair speculation. For, for you to catch, for, for, the law said, you know, obviously, if, if you're caught in adultery, that you're to be stoned. 
okay, and killed. Um, but it was specific about how that took place. You had to literally catch them in the act of committing adultery. Not looking like they did, not, you know, like they may be, but literally catching them in the act. So here's an interesting idea. The law also said that they were both to be taken and stoned. Well, when the Pharisees brought the woman to be stoned, where was the guy? Now, they were always trying to set Jesus up. They were always trying to, you know, they weren't looking for his counsel. They weren't looking for his help. They were looking to set him up again. And it makes me wonder if it wasn't one of them that was with her so that they could catch him in the act and then they let him go. And that's not an unplausible idea. So I'm at this church in Oxford, England, and I'm going to be there. And so I know a young lady there who's an actress, and I, I text her and I said, hey, I'm going to teach on this. Could you kind of, could you act out, you know, the woman caught in adultery? She's like, yeah, sure, no problem. And so I get there, I get there like just, you know, 30 minutes before the service. And so I'm talking to her and I said, could you get some guys that will drag you in and act like the Pharisees and, and all that? She goes, yeah, you know, she's up for all this, you know. So, so she talks to me and she says, what do you want me to do? And I said, well, just, just when I get to this particular passage and I get to this particular point where I say, you know, and the Pharisee, they brought this drug, this woman before him. I said, just, just, Come in, you know, with the guys. Have them bring you in. So, so I'm thinking, you know, it'd be kind of fun and kind of cool. So I get to that point. And it's a room about this big and wood doors in the back and kind of high ceilings. And, and I get to that point and all of a sudden, bam, those doors just bust open. And there's these group of guys and they're dragging this girl and she's in costume now and they're dragging her forward and they, and they toss her down in front of me, you know, violently. And she's on the floor and they're looking at me. And I'm like, I'm like wetting myself, you know? I mean, she scared me half to death, you know? And, 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 and so I'm, I'm looking and all of a sudden this guy, he's gotten into it and he gets in my face and he goes, he goes, teacher, this woman was caught in adultery. You know, the law says this stoner, what do you say? I'm like, I said, get out of my face, is what I say. I'm like, I'm like, gosh, I was like shocked, you know? These people talk about getting into character. It was like, huh. Oh. You know, so I finally got my bearings, you know, and I go, you know, I just went on with the passage, and I knelt down on the ground, and because she was on the ground, um, I knelt down on the ground to do this drawing on the sand thing, you know, that Jesus did that nobody knows what it was, but people speculate all the time, but nobody knows what it was, um, because the scripture doesn't say, period. Um, so, so I kneel down to, to do this, like this, and she's right here. And all of a sudden, I mean, she is trembling. She is shaking. And, and the tears are streaming down her face. And I look up in her face, and I'm looking at the woman caught in adultery. And I'm, 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 I'm like, it was a surreal moment. I am stunned. And all of a sudden, I got it. I got it, you know. Um, there's Jesus with this woman who's terrified. She knows she's been caught dead to rights. And she knows what's about the hail of stones is about ready to come down on her head. And she is terrified. And she's and she sees Jesus is comforted by him. And so Jesus, you know, tells them, gets up and he says, you know, let he's not sin, without sin cast the first stone. And again, I think Jesus was shaming them. I think he I think he played them off of each other. Because not one of them was about to throw that stone in front of their buddies. They all knew each other. You know, let's say old, you know, Zachary picked up that stone and he was going to be the first one to go, oh, no, 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 no. You will not be the first one to throw that stone. You know, we were with you Friday night. We know what you did. You know, you were definitely with sin. You know, and, you know, so they, they all one by one realized that they don't dare throw that stone or they expose their own sin. So I don't think they grew a conscience. I just think they were ashamed of themselves and left. So, Jesus speaks to the woman with grace. With grace. And he says, woman, where are your accusers? She says, I have none. And he says, neither do I accuse you. 
then he brings truth in. Go and leave your sinful lifestyle. Immerses her in mercy and in grace and in kindness and in compassion. She's, she's dead wrong. And he makes it right. He embraces her and forgives her and, he, and then he tells her to go and sin no more. When we see all of that, we see God the Father represented, represented exactly as He is. Exactly as He is. There is no conflict between God the Father and Jesus. There is no difference in terms of their heart, their personality, their nature, their character. You know, a lot of times people pick up on the Old Testament stuff and they go, you know, make up all this stuff. And, but there's, what, what happened when Jesus came is He explained all that. It all makes sense. Because He showed us this is what the Father's about. This is the business of the Father to bring reconciliation to the lost children and the Father who created them. The Father who started a family with them. Isn't that awesome? Isn't that awesome? Just that, that, and then, then he says, then he invites us all into, into the household to eat from his table the best of the best. He wants to give it to us all. And healing's included in that. Salvation and redemption's included in that. Um, and some of it happens like that, and some of it happens over a span of time. I guarantee you, oh, I gotta tell you this, uh, I guarantee you, John and Regina, went through a process. At the time that Paul called him out, he said, he said all kinds of things. He identified his last name, all that, and he said, your name shall no longer be Kevin, but you'll be John. And that was his middle name. And so, the next day at work, Kevin is wearing a John name tag. And people go, is that a joke? He goes, no. Let me tell you what God did for me. And he told his story to dozens and dozens and dozens of people. The women that he had been with came in the store. What's up? Let me tell you what Jesus did. Pretty redemptive. Pretty awesome. You know. So I, but I guarantee you, John and Regina didn't just float through this thing on wings of angels. You know, they had to contend for this healing. They had to contend for this reconciliation. They had to re contend for their family. And they did. I'll never forget. I was with Kevin and Regina every minute, every hour of every day as they lost their baby. Um, I didn't leave their side. I didn't leave their room. I just, I was with them. And, and I went through the process of, of, like I said, the organ donation. And then we stayed around at the hospital because they wanted to be there and see her not breathing because they, she was still on life support so they could keep the organs in good shape. And so they wanted to see her finally resting. And so we stuck around and we hung around. And then late that night, you know, it was, the operation was going to be around midnight. We're outside the hospital. We're going back in to, to see her. And, and all of a sudden, we hear this boom, 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 boom. I'm just rattling, rattling, rattling. You know, just this monster sound. And the helicopter lifts off the, the, the top of the hospital and heads, makes a beeline for UCLA Medical Center where they were going to take those organs and transplant them into another little girl. And at that point, Regina says, we don't need to see her. We know where she is. And so we're driving up the coast of California to go back home. And I'm in the front, and, and Regina's next to me, and in the back, Kevin's in the back. And he begins to sing. I don't know if I can do it. Make me new, Lord Jesus, make me new. Because I find that in so many ways I'm not enough like you. 
Take this weary vessel that I am and mold me once again. Take my life, take my spirit, make me new. That night that Paul Cain called them out, Jesus answered that plea in his heart. He was trapped by his lust, by his sin, by his, he just trapped. And God will go to great lengths to get us out of those traps. And so he exposed his sin and uh, he showed him mercy. God's heart. Amen? Do you have the handheld? Yeah, just, yeah, just bring it to me. I'll get rid of this thing. People are <clears throat> suffering some some physical maladies, and uh, we know that Jesus wants to touch him. But you know what? Some of you may be suffering some soul maladies, some soul sickness, and Jesus wants to reach into your heart. He wants to touch your heart. And he wants to make you new, and that's that's what he does for us. He that's what he does. He comes to us in grace and truth. And he, and he embraces us in the midst of our mess. And he just, he takes a, a, a plane that is spiraling out of control and going to, you know, crash into the earth. And he just whoosh, changes his trajectory. Are there turbulence, you know, along the way? Yeah. But he changes our trajectory. Everything's not perfect. Everything's not wonderful. But we are made perfect. We're made perfect, and he sees us as perfect. He, this deal he did is so complete that we can't screw it up. Go ahead. Try. See if you can outrun God. See if you can flee into the deepest darkness and get away from him. Not if you're his. It doesn't work. Lord Jesus, make yourself known in this room. Right now we ask, walk amongst these chairs and begin to lay your hand on men and women in this room right now. Just sit there and wait for him. I think some of you are even going to feel a physical touch as if somebody touched you on your shoulder. Somebody walking by. He's here, and he's here for you, and he's here for me.